Hey everybody, thanks for downloading this episode of the Chicago Podcast Network's Out Front with AJ and Nick. You can find us on Twitter under Chicago Podcast Network. You can find us on Gmail, Network at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook on our page there, Chicago Podcast Network. And most importantly, you can support the show by downloading and subscribing to this podcast and all Chicago Podcast Network podcasts through iTunes, Android, and any other device that you use. Hope you enjoy the show. Thanks, everybody. And here we go. Hey, everybody. Thank you for downloading this episode of what we're going to be calling Around the World in 30 Minutes. I am your host, Nick Sorantos, joined here in studio, if you want to call it that. Andy's me this leader of the Hellenic uh, American Leadership Council, and uh, we're going to be going through every week and kind of doing a summary of international news, and I wanted to have him sit down for this first episode so you guys can get to know him and know where he's coming from when we get into issues later on as we go forward. So first of all, Andy, who are you? I am, as you said, the Executive Director of the Hellenic American Leadership Council, which is a, you know, it's... You could call it part of the Greek lobby. It's a public education and advocacy organization. You can look us up at www.hellenicladers.com. It's generally a coalition of Greek Americans and Philhellene citizens here in in the state who are getting together and educating the public uh, on Greek issues uh, and the media. Uh, and advocating with U.S. policymakers uh, for uh, positions and policies affecting these issues. How did you get started doing this kind of work? So I've, be, I've generally been in politics and in policy my whole life because I was a baby living in Cyprus when Cyprus was invaded by Turkey. So I was in 1974. In 1974. So uh, when you're you know, as I watch refugees now and uh, go across the Mediterranean, when your whole life is uprooted, you know, by war, and that becomes a very formative moment for you. And uh, my father uh, stayed uh, very active on international issues. Uh, then he also was an architect for the city of Chicago, so I saw city politics, you know, I was learning about it at a really interesting time when, you know, when you'd switch from the older Mayor Daly to then Belandic, the, the snowstorm that brought in Byrne, the first African-American mayor, Harold Washington, then his death. So I, I, I had like kind of a front row seat very early on in my life to a lot of interesting politics and, and, and policy, and uh, that just got me hooked. You, uh, you mentioned that you kind of came up in politics. You strike me as the kind of person in the interactions that we've had that you're, you have a positive feeling about politics, which is a rare thing for the people who are either, who either do it or people who follow it. Do you generally think of it as a positive thing? Yeah, I do. I mean, I, I think part of it is because, and as you know, I'm a big student of history, and I think anything you ever needed to learn, you could have learned in ancient Greece, right? So, okay. So, uh, you know, if you... Uh, I, I'm, I quote quite a bit the funeral oration of Pericles at the end of 
the first year of the Peloponnesian War. I think one of the most famous speeches of all time. In fact, there was a great book written by Gary Wills of Northwestern that said the President Lincoln's Gettysburg Address was based on Pericles' funeral oration. Uh, but he talks about what made Athens great compared to other parts of ancient Greece. And he said, we're the only place that people don't care about just their private affairs. You know, we don't call someone who only cares about their public private affairs and not politics as industrious. We call him useless. Right? And uh, frankly, and there's another great quote by Plato, those people who are not interested in politics are condemning themselves to be ruled you know, and governed by people stupider than themselves. So uh, that that quote's interesting. Only if you look at the current political climate that we exist in in the United States, where you could argue that the disinterest of politics that a majority of people have, two thirds of people don't vote in the elections anymore. You could argue that that's what's getting us to the point where Donald Trump is a legitimate candidate. Just you're allowing the stupid to kind of rule you. Yeah, I mean. It, whether it's stupid or narrow interest groups, right? Because there's people who are very smart, right? But they only care about certain issues, and that's not necessarily the whole, uh, what the public really cares about. I mean, let's take the NRA, right? Uh, you know, there's a lot of smart people who are pro-guns, but most of the country wants gun control, but they don't vote, so just... Those people, uh, they get their say. They're disproportionately powerful. But I think uh, decisions are made by people who show up. You know, that's a cliche. But, and, uh, and there's another famous quote, you know, of an American poet, Margaret Mead, who said, never, never lose faith in, in, in the power of, I'm, I'm not going to quote it exactly, but in, in the power of a small group of dedicated citizens uh, making change. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. So history is full of stories of people who have that positive outlook, who stay involved, uh, making a change. I think the, the, the fact, the worst attitude that we have here right now is, oh, my vote doesn't count. Oh, my, you know, getting involved doesn't count. It, it absolutely does. Uh, it's funny. I have a... Uh for those of you listening regularly, the Outfront program I do with AJ, he and I have this conversation all the time that the lack of people's willingness to kind of, first of all, educate themselves on the issues. A lot of people are really lazy when it comes to this kind of stuff. And what we're trying to do with the podcast network is, in an entertaining way, educate people as much as we can about major issues. But it's it's a difficult thing to do. I also liked, by the way, he worked in two famous lines from the West Wing into that yeah, uh, yeah, that yeah, little exactly. thing there. Um, I wanted to also ask you, you, I went with you to a celebration of what was called Ojide. Mm -hmm. And uh, for those of you who don't know, I could tell it, and, I, and I'm a good storyteller, but I feel I should leave it to you. Do you want to tell the story of Ojide? Sure. Okay. Sure. And then we'll uh, get into what the purpose of the event the other night was. Ojide... Uh, Ochi is the Greek word for no. And Ochide is one of the two major national holidays in Greece. The first being March 25th, which is Greek Independence Day, and the second being Ochide. Now, it kind of perversely, it's Greece's celebration of its entry into World War II. No, no other country in the world uh, celebrates uh, entering World War II. Um, but uh, this is kind of the background. It's October 1940. Uh, the Axis powers are just steamrolling through Europe. 
we're, we're talking about, it's not even close. The holdouts are, you know, Poland fell out in 30-something days. France fell in 40 days. Uh, at this point, at the end of 1940, the longest holdout had been Netherlands, 61 days. And um, some people may remember the famous 3 a.m. phone call commercial that Hillary did against uh, Barack uh, in the 2008 campaign, there was actually a 3 a.m. phone call on October 28, 1940, and the Italian ambassador calls over to the Greek Prime Minister's uh, residence, Ioannis Metaxas, and I have to see you. He comes over and he says, you know what, uh, we're massing our troops at your border, you're going to give us free passage all the way through, we're going to occupy Greece, uh, and that's that. And, you know, the the uh, prime minister's response was literally uh, this means war and he said it in French uh, but that got became legendary oh he said no right and uh, just a few hours after the ultimatum was given Italian troops came across the border uh, they invaded Greece uh, and Greece was a small country right it was a small country not a modern military and, and especially when we're talking about where the Italians, the border, the Italians would have come through, it was not where you would have even had heavy, uh, heavy weaponry and the rest. But um, the Italians came across the border on October 28th, uh, and by November 3rd, the Greeks had stopped the Italian offensive. By November 6th, they had started pushing it back. They started a counterattack. By November 13th, they had recaptured all the land. They lost and started pushing the Italians across um, Albania. This became the first victory of the Allies over the Axis powers uh, in World War II. And it's not only legendary because of what it did for Greece. Now, this is bad storytelling by the world. Um, but because it may, it had a lot of spillover effects. It had a lot uh, of repercussions for Axis strategy throughout the war. Well, historians will argue that it's one of the moments that allowed for the planning of Normandy because it was the first time that the Germans and, sh and the Italians had been shown in defeat, essentially. It was the first time, really, that they had been turned back from an objective of theirs and kind of put a chink in their armor, which allowed everybody to kind of go, okay, there's a possibility of stopping this thing. Yeah, well, I mean, President Roosevelt said it himself, you know, right when everybody thought that the German monster was unstoppable, the Greeks raised a proud banner of freedom and you know, showed the weaknesses. More importantly, though, uh, even more importantly than Normandy, was that Hitler felt stung by Mussolini's defeat. And he stopped, or actually recalculated, delayed his uh, planning for Operation Barbarossa and the invasion of Russia. And then he came, he, he came down to the Blitzkrieg in Greece. Uh, the field marshal, one of Hitler's field marshals, says, you know, the Greeks delayed our invasion of Russia by three months, right? And they yeah, three months they, is the difference between taking Moscow and not. Exactly. The, uh, Stalin's, you know, the chief, his commander that uh, defended Moscow, also on record giving Greeks the credit for buying Russia time. Uh, but it wasn't only the time. Um, it was, you know, 
Germany came down all the way to the, you know, took Greece section by section, and went, it culminated in Greece finally fell after the Battle of Crete. But the Battle of Crete put so much cost onto the German war machine. Uh, it was the last airborne invasion that Germany was able to pull off in World War II. The Greece, uh, the, the Cretans mostly, but there were British special forces there, there were Australian special forces, wiped out paratrooper corps. I mean, this also may explain some of the brutality of the Nazis, the Cretans, but you, know, you fell wounded, you were getting killed by yeah. a Cretan farmer, right? And women as well. They were showing up with pitchforks, they were finishing off the German soldiers. Uh, they were taking out the, the, the planes, the, the transport planes. Uh, the, the, the Nazi Air Force and the paratrooper corps was just not the same for the invasion of Russia, uh, of, the, of the Soviet Union later on. So that, that has, you know, we delayed them, weather played a factor, force played a factor, and then the Greek resistance, Greece fell, so I told you, you know, Poland fell in 30 some days, France in 40 days, you know, Netherlands in yeah. 61, it took the Axis 219 days to take Greece. Well, there's also the factor of that you're dealing with a mainly mountainous terrain, which the truth is, it's going to be next to impossible for any foreign power to ever actually conquer Greece because it's all mountains. You can't really conquer a mountain country unless you're going to put troops in every single town all the time, which is just not possible. And for the Germans in their arrogance to just think that they can just march all over the country and take it over without a fight, to have a bunch of, you know, and we're both Greek. There's a few things in the world more dangerous than a Greek who's actually gotten angry. <laughs> you know? Well, there was a fight. You know, there no, I'm not saying that there wasn't. Yeah, uh, no, yeah, the, yeah. the resistance that went on in Greece is, is the stuff of legend. They, I think if you compare it to, if I, if I remember the stats I've read, if you compare it to the Polish resistance, the Greeks actually destroyed more arms than the Polish resistance did, just ba like based on weight and the amount of weapons destroyed. They were able to do more. You had an event recently, and Ohide was the the event that was being celebrated. You did so also to talk about the situation in Cyprus. But with Ohide, I wonder, we've had so many World War II movies, so many great World War II movies. I, I'm always curious why Hollywood has not told that story. Just even from the perspective of the piece that you showed us at the event where they get into the last broadcast of the radio station, which is, as a guy who does radio... It is is in many ways terrifying, but the dream scenario for somebody who does broadcasting because he, the, the broadcast. Do you know the broadcaster's name? I don't. No, okay, no. but the Greek national radio station in the last what was it thirty minutes of the their last of the thirty for, yeah before the Nazis took thirty minutes uh, for the world yeah. and he literally says any words that come out of this radio station following the end of my broadcast will be lies. Yeah. Do not believe anything mm -hmm. that this radio station says because we will be taken by the Germans. As a broadcaster, that story in and of itself, hire somebody like Johnny Depp, go play that role and just you know tell that story. It, it's shocking to me that that story hasn't been told. It, it is as well to me because of you know even if you did the Battle of Crete now somebody did a DVD you know called the Eleventh Day but it wasn't Hollywood no it wasn't know. it wasn't the Spielberg you know yeah. over the top thing and you know when you talk about the stories uh, you could go on you you could do, you could literally do a movie about just Ohi 
right? Right. <laughs> right. You could do, I actually think that the Greek World War II experience is probably the stuff for a, a Band of Brothers type of miniseries. I was going to say an HBO miniseries, and, and, exactly and, what I was thinking. And, you know, ironically, you know, the, the president of HBO miniseries, uh, is Greek American, is Carrie uh, Antholis, and he was responsible for Band of Brothers. And we should for, lobby this and, dude and, right and, now. And of course, and Tom Hanks' wife is Greek as well. We got this. We got this. Just got to lobby this guy. Uh, but if you look at, you could have an episode, the first episode, dedicated just to the prime minister saying no, the, the actual moment of Ohi. Uh, you could have, you know, I mean, there's there are stories like they give you chills, right? So when when the Nazis took Athens, you know, the first thing they did is they raised a swastika over the Acropolis. And overnight, you know, two punk kids, one who just finished his stint in Parliament, right, uh, they, they climbed the wall of the Acropolis the dead of night. They took that flag down and replaced it with a Greek flag. I love it. And, and that was kind of like a signal for resistance. Uh, there's the story of, again, the Battle of Crete. There's this, there are the amazing stories of, um, uh, and what we just talked about, the, the, the night of the event that uh, you referred to, there was a line, one of our presenters said, sometimes the resistance was carried out with guns, and weapons, and sometimes with nothing more than courage. Yes. And you um, you look at the stories uh, that led to multiple Greeks being um, being honored at, at the Holocaust Memorial, Yad Vashem, and uh, among um, among the saviors, and you know the story of Zakynthos, uh, an island in Greece, which is the only place. You know what's funny? Until the night of Oki, until we went to the event, I had never heard this story. Mm-hmm. Which, and I'm a big history buff, and I had never heard this story. So, uh, go ahead. This and is, in this fact, is, and I'll tell you just as a background, I learned that story from the United States Holocaust Museum. Seriously? Yeah, I didn't learn it. Didn't learn it from the one in Hollywood, Washington, no, the one in Washington with the, DC with the shoe room. Yeah. When I was in a student in D.C. and I went there and I and I learned that story there, uh, but the only place in all of Europe that did not lose a single Jew in the Holocaust was the island of Zakynthos, and that was a big deal because in Greece too, eighty-six percent of Greece's or eighty-one percent of Greece's Jews were were killed, uh, and it was a historic population. It was one of the most significant Sephardic Jewish populations uh, when 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 the Spaniards kicked. Jews out of Spain, the Ottomans settled them in Thessaloniki. There was also a Rumeliot Jew, uh, a Jewish community in Greece that predated Christ. Okay. So when Greeks were pagans, there were still Jews in Greece, right? Uh, but in Zakynthos was originally uh, occupied by the Italians. Uh, then, as people who are fond of uh, Captain Corelli's mandolin know, they, you know there was a there was a fallout between the Germans and the Italians in Greece, and the Germans kind of wiped out Italian soldiers and uh, took over their their uh, their occupied territories. But they went to the mayor of Zakynthos in 1944. The Nazis did, um, and at that point, this was at the front end of the war too. This is, this is how you measure courage. This was four years into the Nazi occupation of Greece, right, or three and a half. This was when you knew that the Nazis were killing people, that there was a shoot-to-kill order for anybody who protected Jews, 
And they went to the mayor and they said, we want a list of your Jews. And the mayor says, okay, you know, I, I, need, a, I need a day to get you that list. They said, we're coming back tomorrow morning. Overnight, he and the archbishop uh, gathered all the village elders. They said, you guys are hiding the island's Jews. You know, take them. They emptied the town overnight. The Nazis come in the next day. And they give them a piece of paper with a list that had two names on it. The mayor's own name and the archbishop's name. And the archbishop said, well, there's your Jews. You know, you want to start shipping people out, you can ship us out. Uh, in Athens, the Archbishop of all of Greece, Damaskinos, who is also among, you know, is honored at the Holocaust Memorial, um, he gave Hitler's commander uh, in Greece a long letter that's published it's, it's, uh, and that says, you know, Mother Greece doesn't distinguish between her children, between religion. So, the Jews of Greece belong to me. So you can't touch him. So and he goes and delivers this letter, and you know the, uh, the the Nazi commander says he returns it, gives him his own letter, which was a shoot shoot order for whoever protects Jews. And Damaskinos replies with, "You don't know the history of occupation in Greece very well, do you? Because you don't shoot priests, you hang them, and I hope you honor that tradition." <laughs> and he walked out, and he calls in the chief of police, and he immediately tells him to issue fake IDs to all Greek Jews that he could, because Greek Jews have distinctively Jewish names, right? right. And and he, and he gave. Uh, fake ID after fake ID, and there was just a few years back. There was a store. There was an exhibition that traveled, and it came here uh, to the state of Illinois building. About sixteen Jewish children who were saved that way, just you know, from from fake IDs. So the, there's story after story. There's the resistance. You know, the Greek resistance caused thirty-five thousand Axis casualties, blew up armories cut 175 rail lines. You talk about the Greek and Serbian resistance, they tied down at the end of the day. You brought up Normandy. On the day of the invasion of Normandy, there were still 28 Nazi divisions tied up in the Balkans. Imagine... If they had been at the shores. Exactly. Um, I want to kind of move into... We've done. We've had fun with the history lessons, but... And, uh, the next time we do this, I want to get into Cyprus a little bit, because yeah, I know sure. you're very passionate about that issue. But the big story of today, it is November 6, 2015, and the big stories going on worldwide is this humanitarian crisis that is taking place in the Mediterranean Sea with these refugees trying to travel across the water uh, to get to Greece, to get to Italy, to avoid basically ISIS and, and the uh, violence that is taking place throughout the Middle East. We, we've talked about these two stories of Greeks doing, essentially, the one thing that I've always been very proud of being my Greek heritage is that historically we tend to do what is morally right, not just what is financially correct, what is politically correct, but with a certain moral certitude that what we are doing is correct. Even in this crisis, I feel that Greece, unlike most of the rest of the European Union, has essentially opened its borders and said, if you can get here... Get here. We're not going to, we can't let you stay here because we're in a financial crisis ourselves. But they've kind of 
gotten to the point where they're doing what they can to help as many people as possible. You have the Prime Minister of Greece, whose last name I just always butcher, so I'm not going to say. Tsipras. Okay. He, he has said several times that he's ashamed by the behavior of the Western European countries uh, for not mobilizing more military force to try to essentially stop people from having to cross and providing transportation for these people to get out of there. You work in that world, in that realm. Do you see any solution to that? That We find ourselves right now with, with Greece, with the financial crisis that they're in. They can't keep these refugees, but at the same time, they can't send them to places that are going to treat them badly. I know that there are a few islands in Greece where they have refugee camps, but they don't have food. It, it's, it's to me getting to the point where does it bother you that the United States is not more involved in this situation? And what do you think the United States' response should be to this crisis? Because let's face it, this is the fault of the United States and their involvement in Iraq for a war that we should never have started in the first place. Yeah, well, it does bother me because the United States, as you just pointed out, are very involved in conflict in a lot of the conflict zones. Um, the refugees are coming from places other than Iraq, too. Yes. Uh, Syria, Libya. Uh, but regardless, Afghanistan, a lot. Uh, but the U.S. and the West in general has its fingers in a lot of those places. Um, the It also very much bothers me that the Gulf Arab states are completely washing their hands of this. Uh, you know, some of them are responsible for ISIS itself, and they're taking no refugees. You're talking Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, that Qatar, Bahrain, you know, uh, and, and all the rest. Um, anybody who tells you they have the answer to it is lying to you. Uh, the first thing that I think um, the number one priority is try to protect them where they are. I, one of the reasons they're making this mad rush for Europe is that they don't feel safe, not in Turkey, not in you know uh, free areas in Syria, uh, in Jordan. Jordan is almost you know that's the next story to pop. Jordan is you know almost collapsing under the weight of refugees. They had, for years, all these Palestinian refugees. Now they have Syrian and Iraqi refugees. Uh, but, one, we, we should be spending money in Turkey, in Kurdish areas of Syria, in Iraqi Kurdistan, in Jordan, working with Gulf states to set up refugee camps there. Because and when uh, we say refugee camps, we don't just mean tents and nothing else. You're talking... Real camps where these people have yeah. shelter and food and yeah. water and the ability to wash themselves regularly. Yeah, absolutely. Right, and they even in the, even an opportunity to be relocated into a city and and all the rest. But the fact is, is that if if these people have a chance to stay close to where they're from, with the dream of maybe getting back there. And feeling safe and keeping their families safe and all the rest, they'll they'll do that. You know, you got to imagine how desperate the situation must be for these people to take this treacherous journey across the Mediterranean or even across the Aegean. Look at the pictures. Just Google the pictures of how many how these people are being packed onto these. Well, I, I saw I saw one today getting ready for this show of 
and it, it breaks your heart. It's a little boy who washed up on shore. He had drowned. Yeah. And it's just his body lying on the beach yeah. all alone. Th- that's the picture that got everybody finally paying attention. Yeah. Right? But this has been happening for the humanitarian crisis is insane. Uh, it's happening at exactly the worst possible time, right? It's during Europe's crisis. It's not only Greece's crisis. And, and frankly... These refugees are not trying to get to Greece or Italy. They're trying to get to Germany and Denmark and the Scandinavian countries. Just Greece and Italy are getting all these refugees because they're the ones with the longest borders. They're the ones next to the Mediterranean and, and, and all the rest. But the West has, there's uh, there's a lot of people, um, you know, since we're talking about Europe and the West, you know, Dante's Inferno, there's a special level of hell for people who are turning such a blind eye uh, to this. And, you know, and there's no easy answer. You know, I mean, Europe was headed in the wrong demographic direction to begin with. You know, it had a negative birth rate, all the rest. This this upsets that balance even more. Uh, you have, uh, you've had over the last few years, because of the economic crisis, a rise of the right wing, in Europe, yeah, this yeah. is going to exacerbate that, right? Because you're going to start to get the Jangoism and the anti-Semitic views, and then which yeah, has been on the rise. The swastika has made a resurgence yeah, in mean, certain parts of Western you, Europe. You have in Hungary, you know, a complete nationalist bigot, you know, as a leader of the country. So, you know, in, in Greece, you have, you know, Golden Dawn, but uh, fortunately, they seem to. You know, so far being limited to ten percent, but everywhere. I mean, in 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 England, you you have this going. In France, you have the National Front uh, leading the pack right now. So the, these problems are going to make it worse. And and unfortunately, there's still no addressing of the core issue, which is as long as ISIS is on the march, people are going to be fleeing ISIS. And uh, part of that is once again not only the West's fault. Uh, for the invasion of Iraq, but even you know, even after that, you have no, a no, very, I, you have a very you have a very strong ally, and the most capable fighters against the ISIS have been the Kurds, and we're not helping the Kurds. Right? So, if you want to look at it, there's 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 a wonderful uh, documentary that was done by Fareed Zakaria. It's on CNN Go uh, called "The Long Road to Hell," mm-hmm. and it was it, I think it premiered last week, and it is fantastic. And it gets into the key decision points that allowed for the rise of ISIS because it wasn't just that. It's very simplistic in today's world to go, well, we should never have invaded Iraq. That's how ISIS comes. But that's not really what happened. We invaded Iraq, and we were, for the very initial push of it, seen by those people as liberators because we liberated them from Saddam. That is, you have evidence of that with the people on the streets, but then we disbanded the Iraqi military and put thousands of young Iraqi men into the streets with weapons with no purpose and nothing to do. And that has, and those people were eventually kind of the birth of ISIS as we understand it. That was the Iraqi insurgency that for a while we were just referring to as Al-Qaeda, which then became, after the split, this is what has become the Islamic State. And I just feel like, as you said, there's a special level of hell for people who look at these kinds of crises and think of it strictly on a financial basis. That's the stuff that scares me. The people who go, well, we just can't afford to do it. You don't 
what's the it's a great wrestling line you don't argue if your neighbor's house is burning you don't negotiate the price of the hose you help him put the fire out and in this instance we are all human beings sharing the same planet and i'm very disheartened when i look at these kinds of news stories and see people reacting the way that they do where it's almost well it doesn't affect me in my daily life so i don't care especially here in the united states because we're so isolated from the rest of the world i don't think that people who live here understand the significance of having oceans on both sides of your country and two of your strongest allies to the north and south we are the most in many ways one of the most isolated countries on the planet and don't have to care about other stuff so the reason for us to care is because it is at the end of the day the decent human thing to do and the more that this crisis seems to be growing the sadder that i I find myself being at, at thinking of uh just women and children and men who are risking everything they can to get out of a place where they can live and not be worried about being killed tomorrow you know and i just the the way that this story is going what do you think is going to be the end result of this because i'm a big fan of play it out to its logical conclusion and right now i don't i don't see this ending well for anybody well one you're you said logical conclusion so i don't know everything yeah fair enough logically uh yeah the the violence is going to have to pick up. Yeah. If you're going to be ISIS, the violence is going to pick up. There is no scenario where the violence doesn't pick up. Um, well, actually, there is one, and there's some people who nonsensically, you know, talk about well, just recognize them as a state and you know li- live with them. Uh, I don't feel that's an option, though. It's not an option because and people not, tried that. By the way, people tried that with the Taliban. But there's also this, and and I'm interested to see what you think about this, because I've been of the opinion since this situation with ISIS, ISIL, whatever the hell you want to call it, started is, we go into Iraq, we go into Afghanistan, we went in the first Gulf War, and it was to protect oil interests, it was to protect economic interests. The United States military, to me, is, you know, we always hear it's the greatest fighting force for good in the world. Well, guess what? They are stoning women to death. They're murdering children of different descents. They're, they're basically committing genocide throughout their country to anyone who disagrees with them. They're going after the Christians in the area. They're going after ancient religious art. They're destroying their entire culture. And if you study their beliefs, they want the United States military to go there because they believe that that is the end time. They are, at the end of the day, an apocalyptic death cult. That's what they are. They believe that by doing what they're doing, they are ushering in the return of the Prophet Muhammad by battling against the infidels. And this is, I'm not making this up, on a very specific battlefield just outside of um, Tikrit, there is a, a large plain that is prophesied to be the end battle between the, the warriors of good and the warriors of evil. And the United States is cast as the, as the bad guy in, that, in their scenario. This is what they want. You can't reason with people like that. You really can't. There's no turning around and going, well, then maybe we'll just recognize them in a state and everything will go away. These are the kinds of people who, they're not going to stop at their own border. They're just not. And the United States is responsible in many ways for this scenario, and it's on us to stop them. The fact that we keep asking for international help is all well and good, but it is on the government of the United States to kind of put an end to this thing and... I don't know if boots on the ground are the answer because after 15 years of war, which is what we've had in the United States, well, let's see. That's where that's where the whole problem is with the debate. You just gave a, a persuasive 
case and then shut it down and then you shut it down yourself. So yeah, the 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 fact is is we're in a weird place as a country because we wanna see good done, uh, but we don't wanna shed blood or treasure doing it. Uh you know, I wish it was just blood. I really do. I wish it was that the United States just doesn't want to sacrifice its own children anymore in a war that they don't know what's going to happen. But I know that the financial concern is just a bigger part of it. No, I, I don't think. I don't think so. I think, think? It, I think it's the blood. I think it's uh, the treasure. When we're talking about treasures, we have economic problems here, and you know, we, right now we, you know, we can't even. We don't. We don't even know if the state's going to be open. We don't know if school. You know, we're going to lay out no. fifty-five thousand teachers, so on and so forth. We so still haven't rebuilt there, New Orleans a, after a hurricane. It's yeah, a place there, eleven years ago. So there, there's a balance. It's not like we want to save profits. We literally, it's a zero-sum game uh, at this point. And the other thing is, you don't know who you're betting on. Yeah. Great. Okay. You you want to do something? Tell me. As I tell people, who who would you give money to in Syria? fight ISIS. You know, that's... Who would you do it? Right? I mean, you can't give it to Assad. Okay, so you have an Assad option. You have an al-Nusra front option. Right? And al-Nusra is just a step below, you know, ISIS. They're al-Qaeda. Right? You have the Kurds who are very good, but we're sacrificing the Kurds to Turkey. All right? Uh, so who are you going to bet on? You know, who who do you bet on in Libya? Who do you you know? Who look at Egypt? Egypt's the greatest example of how we don't know what we want as, as Americans. We, we wanted Mubarak gone. We didn't know if we wanted Mubarak gone, but then we wanted Mubarak gone. Then we think elections equal democracy. They don't. Then the Muslim Brotherhood comes in, and they, they start very much a lot. You know, even though they were democratically elected, of course they were democratically elected. They were the only organized force left other than the military. They targeted Christians. They targeted the press. They get overthrown. Then we don't know whether to call it a coup or not. So this is a terribly complicated region. We don't have a worldview. We lurch in many different directions as a result of you know, reaction to the Bush policies in Iraq or September 11th or whatever else. You know, we're not being proactive, and that's why I don't think there is any easy... We're not trusted in the region. We're yeah, just not trusted in the region. Not anyway. <laughs> not even our allies. I mean, our, our greatest ally in the history of that region, Israel's not going to take whatever the U.S. says. Right. Um, Egypt doesn't trust us. Uh, the Saudis... Don't trust us. Uh, and Russia, openly, and this is diplomatic record, everybody, Russia goes and says, listen, you're not our free, goes and tells our allies, well, you're not our friends, but, you know, we know you're America's friends, but look at how we stand up for our friends and how they stand up for you. So, and we openly declared we want to pivot away from the Middle East and go towards Asia. Yeah, if people think you ain't going to be around, they're not going to care, you know, what you want and what you don't. When we get close to wrapping this thing up, we've been going for a little bit here. Um, the, with the connections that you have, have you heard of any solutions or anything going on 
in Greece that will eventually alleviate them of the concerns of so many refugees in the country currently. I know that they've, today it was announced that 166 refugees have left Greece out of the 100 and something thousand that have arrived. Is that just the start? Like, are they going to be able to ramp that up and get more people out? Do you, do you know? That, or? That's supposed to be the start, right? The right. EU has a policy. Greece is supposed to be like a welcome center or a hotspot and relocation site. Now, like you said, 166. I mean, I think it'd be generous to call it a drop in the bucket. Yeah. Right. Uh, you know, we're going to have to see a lot, a multi pronged strategy. Um, you know, winter for better or worse, may help with the, the process by slowing down the flow. Of but it's refugees. slowing down the flow. It's not because people don't want to come. It's no, because they physically can't get that, there. That's right. So that may buy some some time to, to get this plan going. But, um, you know, but there's also a flip side to this that some people in Europe are arguing you have to stop you have to start saying that's it it's done we're rep- we're not bringing anybody else because if you keep an open border policy the whole population is going is going to empty out to come to Europe because there's really the worst place in Europe is be- better, better than, than anywhere than, than right anywhere in Syria so uh, there has to be some type of effort as well to you know create stable, safe uh, safe zones in their home countries, uh, refugee camps. I don't know if a no-fly zone is going to work now because we've obviously ceded the initiative to Russia in Syria, uh, but you're going to have to get some heavy weaponry to the Kurds uh, and let them protect certain villages. Um, and, you know, because, you know, people also don't, don't understand that the people who are putting up the resistance, and I'm talking about the Kurds, who are putting up the resistance to ISIS. ISIS, they're, they're operating some sophisticated weaponry because they took over Iraqi armies, right. which we provided. Yeah. The Kurds are fighting with Kalashnikovs, some of them. Right? They have RPGs that maybe can pierce the first layer of a, a, an armored vehicle, but not the second and third. So we, if we want ISIS to be defeated, and we're certainly not going to put boots on the ground, and if you were really arming and supporting the Kurds, that might not be a bad strategy anyway. They know that ground better, and nobody yet has beaten the Kurds in a fight. Right? And what, which army possibly has a cooler name than Peshmerga, which means he who walks with death. <laughs> right? Uh, but you have to get serious on on the one hand of stabilizing, you know, uh, the situation, making safe zones for people not to take the risky journey to Europe, and then two, beating ISIS, because as long as ISIS is there, as long as it's there, it's always going to be on the march. It will not stop. Right. That's the other thing with them is that they're not they're not going to be satisfied with a border that you give them. Yes. So you're 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 just going to have to beat them. It's weird to find yourself as a United States citizen going that there's a population of the earth that you may have to just essentially wipe out. I mean, and I know that, that seems kind of a little dismissive, but I mean, I don't know what else. Like, I, 
you're both, you and I are both fans of the West Wing, so it comes down to that great line that I think Leo McGarry has where because I don't know what the end result of this. Is it really? Is it really at the end of the day a United States flag flying over Mecca? Is that really what it's going to no. take to stop it? Nope. You don't think so? No. Actually, a United States flag over Mecca is what will bring the end times <laughs> around. And it's at the end of the day, that was always, and if you look at Al-Qaeda's history, and I know it's really popular, and they did that whole manifesto that they bombed the Twin Towers because of, you know, because of Israel. That's all baloney. You know, they clearly don't care about the Palestinians either. Um, as I tell people, I mean, Look, we, we talked about Cyprus. We talked about 1974, the invasion of Cyprus. One-third of Cyprus's population was made a refugee overnight. Right? Uh, you couldn't go and figure out today, 40 years later, who's a refugee, who was a refugee, who are children of refugees or not. Right? The Palestinian refugees from 1948, they still have them in refugee camps in some of these Arab countries. Right? So uh, the real, the real uh, grievance is that the U.S. has influence in Mecca uh, and over the Saudi regimes, uh, that that's the real battleground. And one of our problems is we have not understood that what's going on in the Middle East right now is, is an inter-civilizational civil war. It's a civil war between Shia and Sunni. It's a between different camps in the Sunni, between secular and Islamists and all the rest. And our problem I believe is we've our, our, our the biggest downfall in U.S. policy is we keep betting on the wrong guys, and that's not a history of United States foreign policy. I don't know what is. All right, man, thank you so much for doing this. We'll do it again next week, ladies and gentlemen. This has been a presentation of the Chicago Podcast Network. We're going to be calling this "Around the World in Thirty Minutes." I think we're going to have to amend that title to "Around the World in Thirty Minutes or So." All right, you know, in around thirty minutes. In, in around thirty. Thirty minutes. minutes Greek time. Yeah, thirty minutes Greek time. There you go. <laughs> All right, and Andy, thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, folks, uh, keep it, uh, keep subscribing to us on iTunes and on Podcast Addict. You can find the website. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter. Uh, we're at Chicago Podcast One on Twitter. We're Chicago Podcast Network on Facebook. You can email us, Network at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. We out!